All right, we're going to read from Acts chapter 4, starting at sentence 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had played, prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, great to be with you guys here today and to be able to, s- to spend some time out of our busy weeks in God's Word, looking at that passage that Jez just read to us, particularly walking through um, a prayer that is prayed in the days of the early church. And I'm really looking forward to getting into this passage. I've actually found it to be a really encouraging and refreshing time for my soul in, as, I've, as I've looked at it over this week, and I'm praying that'll be the case for you as well. Let's just start our time by praying that God would be speaking to us now, enabling us to actually hear from him and to know and see more of him as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, just ask that as we come right now before you and as we open your words, as we get this insight into some of your people from so many thousands of years ago, You'll just be using what they know of you and what, they, what is recorded of what they have said of you to fuel our hope, to fuel our love for you, our confidence in you, our trust, and that you would just leave us with a real sense of peace, knowing that you are a sovereign God and that we would be a people who are able to live out the reality of that. So help us just now as we get into your word. Amen. Now, do you sometimes feel that the future looks pretty bleak for the church? Do you look into the sky of our society and and feel like what you're seeing is dark clouds gathering? Do you get the sense that there might be a growing antagonism towards the Christian worldview or foundational Christian beliefs? I think you get that feeling when you look at the news and when there are news stories that feature churches or, or particularly church leaders. They are typically highlighting the hypocrisy, the failure, the damage that gets caused. And while these things obviously do need to get brought into the light, uh, you, may just also, you may have noticed that there's not much appetite for stories about the good that is in much of the church. Being a, being a Christian has fallen out of vogue. It's not a label that most people would use for someone to describe the good things about them. Often it's about uh, the quirkiness, or maybe it's even seen as a character flaw. 
in TV and movies these days, Christians aren't often the hero. They're, they're typically the kind of weird side character that's kind of there for a laugh. Or more and more, they're actually villains. And even people who aren't Christians are picking up on this reality. Rain Wilson, who's an actor plays Dwight in The Office, last month um, did a tweet after watching an episode of HBO's The Last of Us. This is what he tweeted. He said, As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. And as somebody who watched this show, I felt the same thing. As soon as they introduced a certain character, and he's otherwise normal, but he's reading from the Bible, I had the sense, I know where this is going to go. He's going to be as horrible as it can come. And I won't spoil any more than that for you if you're still watching it, but that's what happens. It used to be the case that a character would come on screen with a hook for a hand or an eye patch or like a little goatee and a moustache and you'd say, that's the villain. But now the prop of a Bible serves the same purpose. And it can be sobering to think that the tides of culture are shifting in such a way as the church and Christians might increasingly be seen as the villains of society. I'm not trying to start like being way too alarmist. There's other realities as well. We're, we're right now meeting in a public high school where we are free to meet and gather with no kind of rules put around how we worship or what we can say. And compared to other parts of the world, it's pretty clear that the opposition Christians face in Australia is remarkably mild. But despite that, there does seem to be some anxiety within the church, not just here, but the church at large, about what it might mean to be a Christian in the years to come. If you're a parent, it wouldn't surprise me if you've thought, at maybe multiple times, where you've looked at your kids and you've wondered how much harder might it be for them to follow Jesus in their adult life than it has been for me. I wonder what extra pressures or challenges they might have to face. Or whether you've wondered where you've thought about your life and you look, there have probably been times if you're a Christian you've felt quirky or odd because of your faith, but you've wondered whether your kids may have to endure being seen as the root problem with society. Or maybe you've wondered even when we came down to the high school, how long is this going to last? How long will churches be free to use spaces like this and say what they would, particularly about issues that are increasingly reaching some form of societal consensus that are diametrically opposed to the teachings of the Bible? Or maybe you've even just wondered, is Christianity just going to die out for good? Is this the end of the line? Is it just simply not compatible in the modern world and 2,000 years of faith ends with us? This is where it stops. Now people are pretty poor predictors of the future and I don't know what's going to be the case in one year from now, let alone 20 years from now. But it begs the question, how should we respond as the church to the possibility of increasing opposition and antagonism towards the gospel message? Should we panic? Should we frantically get to work trying to desperately turn the tides of culture, to jump into the culture wars and aggressively push back on any sign that Christianity is losing its position of dominance and influence in the world? Or do we just call it a day and say, look, this is done, this is, this is a, there's no hope here, God's not there, we're not doing anything anyway, and Christianity's just passing away, let's just get on the next bandwagon. Or it's another way to respond entirely. The passage that we're looking at today sees the first signs of an increasing opposition and antagonism towards the gospel in the early church. And we get this beautiful window to see how the church responds. And in particular, how the church's understanding of who God is 
shapes how they respond. So what I want to show you today, I'm going to try to keep it as simple and straightforward as I can, is that God is sovereign over opposition, and therefore we should pray. God is sovereign over opposition, therefore we should pray. And I hope that's going to be clear as we look at this, at this story. And what we're looking at today really is actually the third part to a story we've been looking at here at City Light for the last three weeks. It's in the early days of the church. And two weeks ago, we saw how Peter and John, two of the leaders of the early church, are walking into the temple to meet with some other Christians and to pray, as was their custom. On the way in, they saw a man who's been paralyzed since birth, sitting outside the temple where he would beg, unable to enter into the temple. And although he wanted to get money that day, Peter and John, in the name of Jesus, miraculously heal this man who rejoices and leaps into the temple with Peter and John. This creates a stir. People in the temple gather around, Peter and John then preach a message saying, this healing has happened because Jesus reigns. He is the one who is, who is God's chosen Messiah coming to this world. It is only in his name that people can be saved. And yet you, people of Jerusalem, killed him, therefore repent. Because of this message, Peter and John, and we looked at this last week, are brought before a group called the Sanhedrin, which is made up of the leaders of the Jewish temple, who challenge them and grill them on their message. And because they're threatened by this message that the Christians are speaking, they say to them, you must not speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John, as we saw last week, just respond by saying, look, at the end of the day, we either have to do what God tells us to do or what you tell us to do. So let's, just, let's go see what happens. And then it's following that that they're released, that they go, and this is where we pick up today. Verse 23, where we started reading, when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So following the trial, Peter and John go back to the other Christians and they tell them, look, guys, I just want to let you know, we've just been told by the Sanhedrin that we can't do this anymore. We can't preach, we can't teach, we can't keep spreading the gospel. And this isn't just like saying, look, if we keep doing this, we're going to get a slap on the wrist or there might be a little fine or something like that. What, what they would have known is that this means that if they're going to keep going with what they've been doing, they face imprisonment or even death. But the Sanhedrin and the, and the rules of the temple had the, the power, the authority, to whip up a crowd and have people stoned for teaching things that they didn't say was okay. So there's a real fork in the road. It's clear from this point forward to the early church that things are going to heat up. The easy days in one sense are over to keep going with preaching the gospel and sharing the message of Jesus is going to mean some suffering. It's going to mean some pain. It's going to, it's going to change into a context of opposition. And it's the kind of moment, if you were going to say, look, we've had a good run, let's quit while we're ahead and just get on with our lives, this would be the moment to do it. Because to continue will mean going down a road that is going to be filled with pain. And so in light of what they hear, what they do is they pray. Verse 24 says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And the reason that they pray and the overwhelming content of their prayer is one and the same. It's that God is sovereign. It's this one truth that is, their, that is the anchor for their hope amidst opposition. And you can see that this is the, tr the truth that they're focused on from the opening line. They start by praying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They start by addressing God as sovereign. Sovereign God, sovereign Lord. And sovereign is one of those words that can be a bit elusive because 
almost definitely no one here used it this week um, in, in day-to-day life. It's kind of a, it's very kind of a particular word. If you watch The Crown, you may have heard it because Queen Elizabeth often called the sovereign, which is the way like of personifying in, in the monarch the highest authority and power in the land. And that is really the usage that the Bible is using when it uses the word sovereign. It's talking about authority. It's talking about power. And in particular, as it's applied to God, it's talking about his lordship, his complete authority to do as he, in his wisdom, decides to do and the power to do it. That is, he has the authority to do as he wills. There is no greater authority than him. There is no one saying to God, you can do this, but you can't do that. And because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, there is no physical barrier. There is nothing that can stop him doing as he pleases in our world. Because he made the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. It's a great way to anchor a prayer when you've just been told by some other authority not to do something that you need to be doing. To actually stop as they do and remember who their God is. He's not some small God. He's the sovereign God who made everything. Who made the vast expanses of the universe. Who, who made every galaxy flung across spaces that we can't comprehend across the universe. And who made every single human being tiny by comparison to the rest of this universe and he is in control god can't be thwarted by something in it in the world so this is so far pretty straightforward god is sovereign he made everything so it's not too hard to believe that he can rule everything and control everything but remember the context of this prayer opposition is rising the possibility of suffering is on the cards which raises the question then, how do you reconcile a God who is sovereign, who is in control, who has authority over everything, with human agency and responsibility and with suffering? And that's really what the rest of this prayer is about. And it's a little bit mind-bending. I need you to work with me as we, as we work through this because it's not a, an easy-to-grasp reality. If we want to be a people who have the heart of the early church and who can pray like the early church, we need to do a bit of wrestling with some ideas that aren't easy. Getting and, and holding on to the sovereignty of God isn't like walking down the street and finding a $2 coin that you can just reach over and pick up and then pull out and spend it when you need it on something small. It's more like digging through hard rock to find a diamond. That a knowledge and an understanding of God's sovereignty is, is precious But it is hard to get to. It takes some work. It takes some even some pain. It can be exhausting. So let's 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 do this together and and look at this prayer and and walk through the flow of logic of what they're saying. The prayer goes, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the prayer is sovereign God who made everything, who said, and then they quote from part of the Bible, Psalm 2, a collection of songs mostly ascribed to to King David, one of the great kings of Israel. And he quotes from this psalm, Psalm 2, which is a reflection of, on the opposition that David as God's anointed king faced and the human tendency to to rally against God's plans, against the one who represents God, 
to reject God and the one he has put in charge. And the foolishness to think that God can be thwarted. They quote a couple of, just a couple of lines from the psalm. The quotation cuts off, but the very next line in Psalm 2, which isn't quoted here, is the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's a psalm that draws to mind the futility of opposing a sovereign God. That no amount of kings and rulers banded together are any match for the authority that God holds. It's not an even fight. The kings of this earth gathered against God is no more threatening than a pack of guinea pigs would be to a lion. And so the question of the psalm is, why? Why do the nations rage? It seems so foolish. God is good. He's powerful. He's in charge. And yet, time and time again, people think they can oppose him. Why? So they quote Psalm 2, and then the prayer continues. Verse 27. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So what's the, what they're saying here is the psalm poses the question in the abstract. Why is it that people and kings gather against a holy God and his anointed one? Then they say, well, look, here it is in the concrete. We in this city in Jerusalem just saw this play out in, in just a matter of months ago. We saw rulers get together, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, to stand against who? Well, they stand against Jesus, whom was anointed. They're praying, this is what the psalm says, but we've seen this horrific reality up close. This tragic moment where Jesus was opposed, arrested, and killed. But the question of the psalm still stands, why? Why did this happen? And then verse 28 has the kicker. It says, why did they gather? Why, why, why? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's the bombshell statement that opposition to the gospel, even opposition to God, is, in, is within the bounds of his planning and predestining. So in Jesus' case, the bitterness of the Pharisees, the anger of the crowds, the greed and betrayal of Judas, the cowardice of Pilate, the insecurity of Herod, all of those failures and wrongs and evils were part of God's plan to bring about what was at once the worst thing that has ever happened. God made flesh, rejected and killed by the people he loved and he created. And at the same time, the best thing that has ever happened. The defeat of death, the defeat of evil, the forgiveness of sins, the conquering of Satan, the reconciling of relationship to God, freedom from the bondage of sin and decay, and the healing of our deepest wounds. And that happened throughout people's opposition. So this prayer, if we can try to condense it and paraphrase it really loosely, would be something like, God, who made everything and is in control of every, everything, in this world where people seemingly without reason insanely rage against you and do these horrible things. We've seen that up close in the greatest evil ever committed, the murder of Jesus. And in that we see that it did happen for a reason. Namely, it was part of your plan. What they're saying is in the darkest moment of history, when all seemed most lost, God was most at work. It's akin to that trope that is in all kinds of movies where towards the end, typically, the the villain looks like they're getting away with it. They look like the, the hero seems to be thwarted, they seem to have lost control, 
and the villains got it, but then it turns out it was the hero's plan all along. I think Ocean's Eleven, this is like the best example that I could think of, and everyone's seen Ocean's Eleven mostly, where, 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 where Terry Benedict takes Danny Ocean captive just before the heist, seemingly intercepting everything. He's aware that the, the, the bank, is, that the casino is getting robbed. He sends out his men, catches the van that supposedly got the money, and everything seems lost. But then it's revealed it was Danny Ocean's plan the whole time, even getting captured by Terry, so that he could elicit a confession out of him that he doesn't really love his beloved Tess, and he could win everything back, get the money and the girl, happy days. He was in control the whole time. And that's the reality that they're drawing to mind here about God, that even in the darkness of Jesus' death, God was not out of control in that moment, but he was most of control that this is what he had planned and predestined. Now, it's a tricky concept, right? Because it's probably going to raise the question for you. If God is sovereign over everything then, even sin and, and evil and brokenness, how can people be responsible for their choices? Or, or maybe another way of asking that question would be, do we even have choices? Like, are we just kind of playing everything out? And I think it's worth pausing on that because, because it is a real challenge when we think of God's sovereignty. Or when words like predestined come up. And I think it's because we're often inclined to think in very binary terms of, is this God's choice or is this my choice? Or is it 50-50? Is it like half mine, half God's? Or is it really 90% God, but I do have that little bit of choice left in me at the end of the day? Or we think of something like the, the Greek notion of fate. Like if you're familiar with the, the myth of Opetus, that, that's the one where Opetus is told by an oracle that he's going to kill his father and then marry his mother. And he thinks, I don't want to do that. I don't want to kill my father and marry my mother. I'm going to do everything I can to not do what I've been told I'm going to do. And everything he does just speeds along the process of the oracle's word coming true where everything in him is overridden by fate and he has to do what he doesn't want to do, killing his father, marrying his mother. Is that what God's sovereignty is like? Does it override all of our desires? I think what we see throughout the whole Bible when we come across again and again and again the idea that God is in control is that it's extremely nuanced that people make willful, often bad choices of their own volition that they are free to make, and yet God is able to weave that in to an ultimate good. There's a story in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, where, where there's Joseph, like Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. He's got the 11, 11 brothers. They hate him. Um, they're jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. So they conspire together to throw him in a hole, sell him off to slavery in Egypt, and just get rid of him. It's an evil decision that they've made. And yet Joseph after spending some years in prison, is able to rise up through the, the ranks of leadership in Egypt to the point where he's actually quite a significant figure l- ruling over all of Egypt's food supplies. So when a famine hits, his brothers come to Egypt to get food. It's him that they've got to ask for it, and he confronts them, and he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see these two realities at once. People being genuinely evil and having evil intentions that even though they are responsible for what they did, throwing Joseph into slavery, that God has a plan that overrides it all. Which comes as a real comfort. 
Because it means even in the face of evil, God is working, not, not even just in spite of it, but, but through it. Romans 8.28 sums it up. And remember, this is a verse that is written to the church in a context of persecution and suffering and people getting put in prison. Um, Paul is even under arrest at the time that he writes it. And he says this, And we know that those who love, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a bedrock truth of the Christian worldview. This is a bedrock truth of the Bible that everything on a long enough time frame with enough wisdom and perspective, it says, are for the good of those who love God. And the reason this truth is so vital and is such a treasure is that it means that when you are going through some form of suffering or hardship, the question isn't, I wonder if this is one of those times where God's going to work this for good. Or, I wonder if God's hand is in what's going on here. But rather, it's a certainty. For the child of God, someone brought into his family, the Bible says clearly that all things, whatever they are, in some way, shape or form, are part of his plan for our utmost good. And I think it's a really unique, unique to Christianity way of viewing suffering that we go through. I think it's actually really helpful because it it manages to hold two things in tension. It doesn't downplay human evil. It doesn't downplay suffering. These examples, like Joseph, or, or you know, he he really suffered. He was really wronged. He really went through some painful, unpleasant stuff. Jesus really suffered. He was really betrayed. He felt the injustice of it all. It's not downplayed. And so this is why a Christian can say to a brother or sister who is suffering or has suffered that what you went through was really horrible. That it wasn't good. It was bad. It was unpleasant. Or when it's specifically being on the receiving end of some human evil, to be able to say, God hates that evil. That should not have happened. That was not fair. That was not right. Rather than just saying, chin up, God's got it, like some kind of flippant answer. It it holds the gravity of evil in one hand. But then it doesn't leave you then saying, that was really evil, God had nothing to do with it. Because if that's the case, it means that God either wasn't looking, wasn't caring, or wasn't able to do anything. No, brokenness and evil are real, and yet God is sovereign and in control. And we often can't see how it is for our good in this lifetime. There's no promise in the Bible that God works everything for your good and he'll tell you in the moment how it is for your good. But when we can't see what is going on, we can trust his heart and power. Now I'm aware that I've just kind of cracked open the door, maybe for you, into maybe some particular suffering or hurt that you're still working through or even experiencing now. And that's going to take some, some wrestling to see to reconcile how God is sovereign. And if you're not already speaking to someone through that, we'd love to invite you to speak to us. Write it on one of the white cards if, it, if we can talk to you or follow something up with you. But where I just want to hover now, not just is in suffering in general, but specifically in the context of an increased hostility and pressure towards the church, which is what this passage is talking about. Because it's going to frame the rest of the book of Acts for us as we keep walking through it. That from this chapter forward, God will use opposition and evil committed against God's people to ultimately bring more and more people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. 
and to grow the church in love and in depth of character. And I think this is really, really important for us to get in our context because if it is the case that pressure is slowly being dialed up against the church in Australia, then we need to have a deep conviction, a solid foundation of understanding that that does not mean that God is not in control, but rather if persecution and opposition increases here, that does mean that it is for our good and as part of God's plan. And author John Piper has written a book called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, which is a, a worthwhile read if you want to think through this. Side note, another book I just looked at this week, Tim Keller's book on suffering, walking, walking with God through pain and suffering, also really get good to grapple with those ideas. But in, in Piper's book, he writes specifically about how growing opposition can be for the good, or is for the good of the church. And he's got this quote, I'm going to quote it at length because I just found it so helpful this week. He writes this, The lesson here is not just that God is sovereign and turns setbacks to triumphs. The lesson is that comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. The very things that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money for the missionary cause instead produce the exact opposite, weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, and preoccupation with security. Studies have shown that the richer we are, the smaller the percentage of our income we give to the church and its mission. The poorest fifth of the church give 3.4% of their income to the church, and the richest fifth give 1.6%, half as much as the poorest church members. It is a strange principle, one that probably goes right to the heart of our sinfulness and Christ's sufficiency that hard times, like persecution, often produce more personnel, more prayer, more power, more open purses than easy times. Persecution can have harmful effects on the church, but prosperity seems even more devastating to the mission God calls us to. My point here is not that we should seek persecution, that would be presumption, like jumping off the temple. The point is that we should be very wary of prosperity and excessive ease and comfort and affluence, and we should not be disheartened but filled with hope if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. To be, filled with the thought, to be filled with hope at the thought of being persecuted for righteousness' sake sounds crazy, but it is Jesus who said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. We're not often informed by what the Bible says, but by what we've just kind of decided for ourselves that the best life is going to be the easy one. What strikes me reading over that quote is going back to what I was saying before and you know, worrying about what kind of world my kids will grow up in, that it might be hard to have faith in a time of persecution. That's not a fear that's informed by anything in the Bible. Because if you understand the way that our sovereign God works, what I should be thinking is, I wonder if my kids are going to grow up in a world in which there won't be space for shallow Christianity, the, the type that most of us settle for at some time or another the kind of easy faith that doesn't go too deep and doesn't satisfy. I should be thinking maybe instead of having a, a faith like mine, which is often pretty flippant, maybe my kids are going to grow up with a deeper, more joy-filled, more prayerful degree of faith in their God than I've ever experienced. Maybe that God will use opposition and pressure to refine the church, not to destroy it. 
maybe even thinking about your own future. Maybe I should be thinking, maybe the years I've got ahead of me won't just be in some ways more difficult if persecution grows. But what if God has actually got more good plans than I could ever imagine? There is still some knowledge of him, some understanding of him that I might not get any other way. God is sovereign. He's working for our good, even in the hard times. And that reality, whilst it changes everything in, in all kinds of different ways about how we live, one thing that should lead us to, and it's what you see in this passage, is to prayer. If you get that, if you understand that God is sovereign and in control, praying makes the most sense. Look at what they pray. Verse nine, this is 29, this is the last section. We'll, be, we'll actually be quite quick through this bit. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Or you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. It's kind of counterintuitive on some level. Because you think if God's sovereign and he's got a plan and he's in control, why, why pray? Because he'll just do what he wants anyway, right? Without my prayers. But there's no defeatism here. There is no kind of thinking it's pointless. In the same breath, the church acknowledges that God is sovereign and then they ask things of him. And finally, they don't ask that the suffering won't happen. They ask that they will be bold and that they would persevere. And they would ask that God would not stop working the way that he has been. They're really saying, God, in light of these threats or how things are looking, please don't let, let, it, let it all stop. Please don't stop working in the world and don't let us stop speaking the gospel with confidence. And the reason they ask is because God is sovereign. Only with a sovereign God is prayer actually worthwhile. If God's not in control of anything, why, why pray to him? But they know God has a plan. They don't take it for granted. They don't wait around for for just God to heal. They don't presume that their prayers make no difference. No, they pray because they know their prayer is a vital part of God's sovereign plans. That their prayer changes things because the sovereign God has always planned to answer their prayer. And the prayer is answered. Verse 31, how this finishes, this chapter ends. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's as though God is just trying to show them, make them aware that he is pleased with their prayer. That he, he delights in the prayer that they have prayed and what they have acknowledged and what they have asked for. So we need to be a people of prayer. God is on the throne. He is in control of all things. He has all power. He desires to act and to give life. And he calls on us to be a people of prayer that we would be a people who pray and bid him to do his will, not to alter his will or to bend him to us or to think that we know what is best, but to have us bend to him. That we would be a praying people so that we might abide in him and join our hearts to him, that his heart for people would be our heart for people. And his, and his desire that the gospel go out would be our desire for the gospel to go out. We pray that our desires would be purified and aligned with what is truly good and right, that we might tr- to be comforted with the comfort that a child has from being able to speak to their parent and to realize that their parents got everything under control. That we might be empowered in the way that a soldier would be empowered by contacting their commanding officer and realizing that their support is on the way. That we might be grateful as we pray, as we see him act in our midst and answer our prayers 
confirming that he is the true and living God. And that we would be a people who pray that his will will be done, come what may, come what suffering, come what challenges, come what trials, that we would be a church that does not give up, that does not hold back on going forward and taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. That his will would be done. Because he's sovereign, he's the God who made the heavens and the earth, and he is with us. So we're going to pray. And I was going to, yeah, I was going to pray and then the band come. But I actually do, I want to, I'd love us to pray as a church right now, to spend a bit of time. Because I think it's the fitting response to what we've just read. That God is on the throne. That the church, when they see hard times coming, pray. That we should be a people of prayer. So in a minute, Jez will bring a mic around. If he's got one with it, he's got, uh, he'll have a mic. And if you just want to pray, put your hand up and he'll bring a mic to you. We want to just pray for us as a church that we would be bold. We've just heard a bit about Alpha. That's an opportunity that is before us in the coming weeks and months where we desperately want to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Would someone pray for that? To ask God to be bringing people along and, and enabling us to be bold in going out, having conversations and inviting. To be praying for not just us here at City Light, but the churches throughout Sydney who are standing in a, in a tide of people rejecting God, but also in, in, a, in a whole ocean of need. There is so much need in this city, so much desperation for connection with God and for something that gives satisfaction and, and meaning and spirituality. And, and in the gospel, in the Bible, there is the answer. Would you pray that in Sydney, God's gospel would keep going out? Would you pray for churches as well around the world who are suffering in ways that we can't imagine, who, who face challenges and threats that we can't comprehend, churches in North Korea or China or Iran or, or parts of India or in, in Northern Africa, where, where there is risk in being a follower of Jesus? Would you pray for God to work, to work in powerful ways, in saving people, in opening eyes, in changing hearts? We're going to spend some time praying now. If you'd like to pray, it doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be eloquent. Just put your hand up and Jez will bring you a mic. And after some people have prayed, I'll, I'll close our time for us. But let me just open for us now. Heavenly Father, you are the sovereign God who made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And it is to you that we pray because you are the God who listens. And praying to you is not in vain.